1: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg.
0: Hi there, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. My conversations this week are in Seville. I'm attending the World for Travel Global Summit in this Spanish city. And that summit attracts some great thought leaders from all around the world. I'll sit down with Eliza Reid, the First Lady of Iceland, to talk about climate change and tourism. Then, I'll look at the cruise industry with veteran executive Roberto Martinoli from Royal Caribbean. And then, I'll look forward as we enter 2024 with Patrick Smith, founder of AskThePilot.com.
2: download the app or visit Carvana.com today
1: what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one in the Coast Guard we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. The
0: mm-hmm. First Lady of the country of Iceland, mm-hmm. Eliza Reid. Thank Thanks so much.
3: My pleasure. Happy back on the show.
0: This conference, obviously, talking about sustainability, how we move forward, Iceland really is almost a, a case history and a, and a role model at the same time mm-hmm. of how you manage resources in a world of climate change and global warming because mm-hmm. you can see it at your doorstep.
3: Yeah, we really can. And you've been there yourself Peter. You yeah. see now we have 10% of our country is covered in glaciers which are rapidly receding. So we are really really close to the effects of climate change right now in Iceland, but for a long time we've been looking at being a very sustainable society. So for example, our energy needs are almost entirely met with renewables now, all our electricity and our heating and all of that. So we've been Well, you were
0: blessed with geothermal.
3: We are we okay, yeah. We we do have a bit of an advantage uh, and a head start when we're doing things, but I think, you know, society overall is on board with this idea that sustainability and working towards a better planet is gonna benefit all of us and the tour- tourism industry is incredibly important to us it's the biggest contributor to our gdp so we want our visitors as well to have a sustainable experience if you will right and that means protecting the natural sites that that our country is known for all the the waterfalls and the geysers and the hot springs and everything that people to come and see we want people to come on on roads that are that are safe and that they're not tramping all over the moss and and ruining that but we also want people to come for cultural reasons and, 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 and you know, eat, eat good locally produced food and, and listen to our music and go to our concerts and attend festivals and all of these other things as well. So we've been really thinking for, for many years now about the sustainability, about making sure that people are traveling to different regions of the country, that they're staying for longer periods of time. They're not
0: just trying to tick off a box.
3: Exactly, exactly. And that they're coming, you know, at different seasons and all of that. So and, and you know. Ninety three percent of the people who visit the country say they've had a positive experience, so I guess we're doing something right.
0: And the other seven percent they haven't found the bodies. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Just kidding.
0: But I want to go back to something you and I talked about offline, and that is the glaciers that are that are melting or mm-hmm. that are going away, mm-hmm. right You actually have signage posted.
3: Yeah. Yeah, so you can, there's a there's a glacier that has disappeared now, technically. It's called Oak, and there's actually a sign that was written there by one of our, our well-known authors who talked about saying, you know, we say that in 200 years, maybe all of these glaciers will be gone if we don't look after it, and only the future generations know whether we did. But you can also drive up to points where glaciers did extend to, say, in 1950, and then you head a little bit farther inland, and then this was where it stopped in 1970, up to 2000, 2010, 2020, and we still see how much they've been receiving in even in those short few years.
0: So what you're telling me there is a pattern.
3: (laughs) Well, indeed, absolutely. But then
0: you say, we don't look after them. How do you look after a glacier?
3: That's all to do with the climate change and the warming climate and how they're melting. So it's all... interspersed there in terms of our emissions and what we're doing, and that's why, for example, we have all of these uh, renewable energy sources and then we're working towards reducing what does exist there, which is uh, non-renewable sources such as the you know air traffic, although there's all kinds of technologies going on there. We've got amazing carbon capture technologies that we're working on in Iceland right now where you're actually taking out the carbon dioxide from the environment, capturing it in our porous lava rock that we have lots of in Iceland too. So innovation is really, really important there. And I'll, you know, tie it back to tourism again, which is so important. And that's when we visit different countries and different cultures and we can talk with each other and share ideas and talk about uh, different innovations and approaches and what we're doing and and understanding the problems and and, and seeing it with our own eyes. I mean,
0: first of all, you have the geothermal, right? Mm -hmm. But also you have an opportunity to electrify
3: Yes, yeah, and we've had huge initiatives in, in electric car vehicles, for example, and we're working on that. Do you have for charging stations? We do. You can actually go, <laughs> so if you go to visiticeland.com, we have a map there where you can see the charging stations. Are you promoting Iceland
0: right there? <laughs> Iceland.com? Go ahead.
3: <laughs> so on visiticeland.com, you can see the charging stations, and there's a whole sustainable travel page where you can actually go and look and see about different things as a visitor to make your experience more sustainable, which includes uh, taking a pledge to talk about, um, you know, being a responsible tourist, committing to drinking the tap water. Like you'd think it's a small thing, but we have the best tap water in the world. So... Some Great. would say. Some would say. I, I absolutely unequivocally say, but I'm a little biased. A maybe. little
0: bias. I like New York tap water. Okay. But I like I,
3: yeah. come on. Yeah. You'll New give York tap water's good. I'm gonna give you that. It's okay, it's fine. pretty good. But. by the way, <laughs>
0: Eliza's originally from Canada and she just said the magic word that will tell everybody she's from Canada. She said about.
3: Did I <laughs> you never lose the accent, you know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you have the you can electrify. You mm-hmm. have the geothermal, that's sort of built in, that's baked in right now.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh but how do you educate your visitors? Mm-hmm. How do you let them know what's appropriate and inappropriate behavior?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, that's why you have things like this sustainable, this traveler, Icelandic traveler pledge, uh, which has been in operation for a decade now. And when you go to, visit, the way, they do that
0: in Micronesia.
3: Yeah, we another New Zealand, like other countries, and you know these these ideas they shouldn't they shouldn't be patented. You know, we should be sharing these ideas of how to be better travelers the world over. And I think that we as travelers. Want to be educated? We want to treat a country with respect. We want to kind of follow the traditions well and leave it in a good in good condition. So a lot of that in Iceland has to do with um, you know uh, not putting yourself in a dangerous position to take these great photos of nature or listening to weather by forecasts. The way,
0: by the way, we yeah. did a segment on our show on our television show a couple of years ago, which was difficult to actually visualize because it was so disturbing. But the name of our show was "Death by Selfie." And it's people who decide, hey, I'll pose in front of the oncoming train, or I'll lean my head out the window, or I'll back up two more steps off the cliff to get that photo. Mm -hmm. I guess the question is, what makes people think that the definition of a great photo has to have them in it?
3: Well, that's that's a whole other debate. I think yeah. you're right. That's a that's another you know that's the the smartphone revolution. But there's also a mentality of people thinking, "Oh, I'm going away on holiday; nothing can happen to me." You know, it's why people don't get their travel insurance that they should be getting or things because we don't know. And sometimes we're a little more careless, or we think, "Well, that tourist—they're standing near there by the water. That's not going to make a difference." And and you know, it should be safe for me, despite all the signs that say that there's sneaker waves coming up here. And then you realize that actually, you know that you gotta pay attention to to all of these signs. And, you know, in Iceland, we talk a lot about the weather because we can have pretty unpredictable weather. That's part of the adventure of being in the country. And if you drive on a closed road in a snowstorm that's, you know, had these signs saying don't do that in your rental car, it's our volunteer search and rescue crew who are gonna come and save you.
0: By the way, I'm, I'm a volunteer fireman in New York, and we're about to establish a rule, other fire departments have, that if there are posted signs that say, don't do this, and mm-hmm. you do this, mm-hmm. you're paying for the rescue.
3: Mm. There's sometimes a debate. We don't have that at all in Iceland because we want people to call for help if course, they need help. Of course. Yeah. Gee, how
0: much does it cost them drowning?
3: Yeah. People got to be aware of that, too, and say, like, you know, we're not joking around if we say there's going to be bad weather going to be bad weather
0: i will tell you that that the very first time i went to iceland um i helicoptered over and the helicopter landed and i put my feet on the ground and the ground was so hot mm-hmm. i mean i hadn't i wasn't ready for that at all but then i realized that's what you are.
3: I mean, it's probably the country where in, when I moved there 20 years ago, and I realized that in Iceland's probably the only country where you turn on the cold water and you got to kind of let it run for a bit to get really nice cold water <laughs> to, to drink from.
0: <laughs> By the way, point of history here, you moved there 20 years ago because you met your husband where?
3: At Oxford University in England. So you
0: were from Canada. He was from Iceland. Yeah. You married. Yeah. He became president. Yeah. Yeah, you're first lady.
3: I know. It's a, it's a crazy story, but you never know what's going to happen. The thing
0: I love the most is that you were editing the icelandic air yeah in flight magazine yes
3: yes and you know it was great when he ran for president and we were traveling around the country campaigning and as an immigrant to the country i was so fortunate that when i'd learned the language already so i was you know doing all the campaigning in icelandic as well and i traveled not an easy language not an easy language and i traveled to a lot of those regions as a travel writer and and interviewed a lot of people in the tourism industry. And that was really helpful and it's been really helpful for me when I've been able to serve as first lady because it enables me to talk about this country that I love so much. in an international audience and I feel like you know because I moved there as an adult it kind of entitles me to brag a little bit more because it was less (laughs) (laughs) just being born there randomly. I
0: was talking about the fact you guys are making single malt whiskey Mm -hmm. which is amazing Mm -hmm. uh, that they could even open a distillery in the middle of a a volcanic island.
3: I mean we've got single malt whiskey Icelandic gin Icelandic vodka amazing Icelandic beer there's been a whole revolution in the spirits industry in the last 10-15 years.
0: So basically everybody's drinking.
3: Yeah (laughs) well you know beer was illegal in the country until 1989. So it's Come all on. a new tradition. And the yeah. reasoning was that was that the church. Well, it, it was the reasoning was the government that you know if if something is as cheap and as common as beer, then everybody would be drinking all the time, and it would lead to the moral decay of society. And when they legalized beer in 1989, and it's still celebrated as a sort of beer day sometimes now that. With excessive
0: drinking, I'm sure.
3: (laughs) Well, among some sectors. But, uh, you know, it's really changed a lot since then. But my husband remembers, you you know, growing up for teenagers, you'd buy non-alcoholic beer and put a shot of schnapps in it.
0: Oh, God. Which probably
3: tastes as it sounds.
4: Yeah,
0: okay. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Uh, But let's move on to that because when we talk about politics and travel and tourism, Mm. the incident that I remember the most, and you probably do as well, which was completely unanticipated, but it taught the world a lesson. Taught the world a lesson about the importance of travel and tourism was when the volcano erupted in 2010. Mm-hmm. Because that was oh no, it wasn't 2010. Yes, it was. It was, was 2010. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was 2010, and aviation came to a halt. Yes, and all of a sudden, people who depended on their flowers. Or heart transplant recipients. I mean, it yeah. ran the entire
3: spectrum. Yeah. It was the greatest interruption to air traffic since the Second World War over Europe because of this ash cloud. And you know, I guess there's a sort of slightly cynical phrase that says all news is good news in in some senses. Uh, over in Iceland, that volcano was not you know threatening people's lives. There was a town that uh, had ash effect, but you know nobody died or anything from the right. volcano. And we thought, well. Iceland's in the spotlight now, this is the moment to remind people. And you see, it's a lot closer than I thought it was. I mean, a volcano on this island in the North Atlantic has shut down air traffic. It can't be that far away. And that was really leveraged to put you and, on the map, to put us on the map. And the fact that just a couple of years before, we'd had one of the biggest banking collapses in history. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. So all of a sudden, it was more affordable to visit as well, because the currency had collapsed. And really, those two things, I mean, it was that increase in tourism that actually allowed us to pay back the IMF loans that we had to take out after this banking collapse. So, see,
0: beware the law of unintended consequences. Well, there you go. But, you know, I remember going there right after the volcano, and you guys wasted no time. There were coffee mugs, refrigerator magnets, yeah. everywhere saying, whoops, we did it again. Yeah, the I mean, yeah, yeah, <laughs> volcano blowing the lid off, it was unbelievable.
3: That's right. And we've had, you know, the volcanic eruptions in the last few years as well. We are a volcanic island, and it happens. And uh, there's been a lot of uh, increase in tourism from people who want to go and see these volcanoes from a safe distance, I um hasten to add and uh and and so you never know what you're going to experience when you come to Iceland.
0: As first lady, what's been your biggest challenge?
3: Ooh, my biggest challenge, the clothing?
0: Is that on, a, that's not
3: on. a serious answer, you, no, I
0: don't no, know. No, elaborate. Please.
3: Yeah, well, so you know I grew up on a in a on a farm just outside of Ottawa in Canada. I met my husband in graduate school. Moved to this new country and and had a bunch of kids and started a business and was doing work. You didn't have
0: a bunch of kids. You had four. I had four kids. Yeah,
3: <laughs> and um and. When he became president, it's a very long story, but he'd never run for public office, and it happened in a span of about six weeks. So we were really thrust onto the national stage very, very quickly. And so I say seriously, semi-seriously, that all of a sudden we were being photographed everywhere he went and written about. And uh, when you've had four kids in six years, and, you know, I basically wore my old maternity pants all the time when I was at home and and had two pairs of shoes. And... um, you know, it's been something that I, I've thought a lot about over the years, because it's such an honor and a privilege to be able to serve in this sort of unofficial role. Um, but it's also very strange, right? Because all of a sudden, I'm nationally known as somebody's wife, and and not necessarily as me, first of all. And
0: well, I remember somebody yeah. asked you one day, how do you manage the, the kids? And, and your answer was what?
3: I, I said, "Well, what did my husband say when he was asked that question, <laughs> <laughs> which he had not been asked?"
0: <laughs> but then he was asked. But
3: then he was asked. Exactly. So you know, that's just a, a you know a tiny example of I think where I, if I can use my voice for something to to sort of helpfully point things out or just talk about things or just remind people that everybody has a voice that we can be using. You know, in Iceland, my voice has an accent. I'm an immigrant. I've learned the language. About. Uh, about yeah Uh, maybe in English my voice has an accent too and you know I think that's important for people to know that immigrants shouldn't just talk about immigrant issues and as a woman who is a spouse that doesn't mean that I just need to talk about quote unquote spousal issues or whatever it is that people think wives are supposed to talk about. When you
0: look at the history of first ladies that's exactly what they did
3: well yes and and, but I've had the privilege of meeting.
0: Except Eleanor Roosevelt right? (laughs) and that was how many years ago right? A
3: long time and you know I've had the privilege of meeting quite a few spouses now and they're all course, very interesting people who've had all these interesting experiences. And I think uh, we all kind of tend to get lumped into a a stereotype in some way. So when I became First Lady, I thought, you know, if I have this platform, I'm going to use it to talk about things that that I feel passionate about. Travel and tourism is, is one of those because I've worked as a journalist and I've worked in the travel industry. And so I thought, why not use my voice to bring attention to that? Gender equality is another issue. You know, even though I have a platform because my husband achieved something, which is pretty ironic... If I have the platform, I'm going to use it. Everybody has a voice.
0: Although I do want to remind you, you said you worked as a journalist. Once a journalist always a
3: journalist <laughs> always asking questions always meeting people and then i published a book there, so. see i told you there it yeah. is mm-hmm. and the name of the book is again secrets of the sprakar iceland's extraordinary women and how they're changing the world sprakar is an icelandic word that means extraordinary women so it's all about you know what we're doing in iceland it's really a love letter to iceland actually i think it's like a travel book to iceland
0: with well i am happy today they... to speak to an extraordinary woman eliza reid the first lady of iceland thank you so much for joining
3: my us. pleasure thanks for having me on again
0: My thanks to the first lady. The cruise industry is at an interesting crossroads when it comes to sustainability. Is the technology moving fast enough to reach the carbon zero goals? Roberto Martinoli has an update on sustainable fuel systems, as well as how cruise lines can schedule a cruise ship and actually make a difference.
2: Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole?
0: Roberto, welcome.
5: Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you for having me. Uh,
0: you know, we've been talking about this for quite a while. There was a seminar on it today about, you know, sustainable travel as it relates to cruise ships. And, you know, we go back 30 years. It was an issue then, but it was all about cruise ships like polluting the water or discharging waste or oil. Now it's it's gone beyond that to uh, sustainable practices that, first of all, redefine what the word waste is, redefine the word oil, redefine the word fuel. Um, And, you know, we've seen cruise lines already say, okay, we're not going to use single-use plastics. We've seen cruise lines saying, we're not going to throw anything overboard anymore, a zero-tolerance policy where everything gets processed on the ship and stays on the ship until the ship gets to shore. Uh, We've seen cruise ships that have systems now that allow them, when they come into certain ports, like Alaska, to to plug, literally plug in to the, to the power grid so that they're, so they're not burning fuel, like, you know, leaving your car running, things like that. But now the real focus these days, as it is in aviation, is the fuel itself. Sustainable, they call it sustainable aviation fuel. Is there such a thing as sustainable cruise ship fuel?
5: Uh, yes of course uh, we are uh, all using a uh, similar type of fuel the the, the, the jet fuel is, of course is a lighter product and we use uh, a product which is a little bit different but they all come from uh, from fossil fuel so and this is what is available today all over the world and this what the supply chain all over the world uh, makes it available uh, there is first but of all but, a, but, but of
0: course, in the aviation industry, we know for the last five or six years that it works, sustainable aviation fuel works. They've tried yeah. it on a number of different airlines, whether it's bio, di- not biodiesel, well, but bio... We, and yeah.
5: we do the very same thing. Actually, yeah. actually, we can go even further than that because not only do we have the biodiesel or the you know alternative fuel that are available, that are uh, able to be burned into, into the same engines or propulsion systems that we have, but we also went uh, a step forward and we also been we are working with hydrogen we are working with fuel cell we are working with hybrid batteries we are working with methanol ammonia uh, and uh, and in uh, many other source of fuel uh, the latest uh, research and development goes to uh, carbon capture and reutilization so you can take the car- you know you can use the a carbon fuel take the carbon out and put it back again. So there are a lot of new technologies that are being investigated. And I think that uh, we can safely say that uh, the cruise business has done tremendous uh, work on that. And uh, what you were mentioning about 30, 40 years ago is things of the of, 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 of you know many, many years back. I, and I'll, I'll the systems story, yeah. on board today are extremely innovative. They are, I mean, I can tell you that if you come on board and see one of our... Uh, you know, like waste treatment system, you would be in- incredibly surprised. And I have seen it. You but, have.
0: But I okay. want to go back 40 years and tell you a story. Sure. I was told by a crew member years ago on Royal Cruises, so we're mm-hmm. going back to the, to the Greek, yes, Greek company. Yes, of course. Yes. He said to me, at night, don't go out on deck wearing a white shirt. <laughs>
5: and I said, what are I you mean, talking these, about? These are really things of the past. I, mean, I know. But I, changed. And,
0: and sure enough, one night <laughs> I went out, I was covered with driplets of oil and soot because that's when they were burning everything at night. Yeah. Those days are gone.
5: Yeah, they are completely gone. I think, like I said, I mean, we are, uh, and in fact, we are trying to, we, we are showcasing our, our, our uh, systems, our ships, our plants. And uh, we've been investing a lot of money in, in R&D uh, with very little help from uh, regulators and governments. I mean, to make sure that uh, we do advance and we do the best we can to reach the goal that we've given ourselves and that the, the regulators are giving us in the shortest possible time. And uh, and there is uh, an incredible improvement. If not for anything else, think of it. I mean, fuel is a cost for us. So, I mean, if we can burn less, I mean, you know, it's a big uh, economical advantage as well. So, we have many motivation. Of course, the first one is to be, I mean, good stewards of the world that we work in and our destination, are our, our, our asset, I mean, you know, our best asset. So... Uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's very interesting to see what has been done.
0: Well, we talked about all the different fuels that you just mentioned, right? LNG, yeah. hydrogen, uh, ammonia, ammonia, ammonia,
5: methanol.
0: Have, the, have any of them uh, LNG? It has, but yeah. are all the other systems working uh, yet or no?
5: We do have proven that we can we can produce. I mean, we can we we can generate power with those uh, alternative fuel, and I think that LNG has been an, a very interesting tool because it's given us the opportunity to adapt engines to other fuel. So an LNG is uh, kind of uh, uh, you know, it's propane. Yeah, it is, but yeah. I mean. It, it's also uh, helping in uh, making sure that we know how to adapt the engine to burn different fuels so when you have engines like we do have all of us have today that are uh, uh, capable of burning multiple fuels on the same engine i mean the, then the problem is where to store it and how to store it which is a different which is another interesting topic and how do you supply it but i mean it, it's it's already a big step forward so we are we know that we can burn different fuels. The problem is to find what is the best solution for the future that can can that can be available everywhere in the world because ships are going around the world, so they need to be supplied not only in one location but in many different locations.
0: And therein lies the problem. Just like with aviation fuel, they're not making it enough in volume, so yeah. it's not affordable, even though they know it works. So it's you know six of one, half a dozen of the other. Where do you wh- what's the tipping point that's going to incentivize people? To create that fuel in volume so that it can be used.
5: Well, I I think that uh, this is something that we need to work together with all the operators, uh, uh, together with the regulators to make sure that we all push into what is the the right final decision. So, Because today we are facing uh, regulation that do not have practical solutions yet. So, and of course, I mean, we are investing a lot of time and money in R&D to make sure that we'll get there soon, you know, very soon. And uh, incredible progress has been made in the meantime. We have an uh, installation of fuel cell, and fuel cell is another very interesting thing. The problem with fuel cell is that you need to you need to employ hydrogen, and hydrogen is difficult to be transported because you of the, the very container. low flash point yeah. uh, Ammonia is a, a toxic gas, so we are learning on how to deal with those products in a very safe way so that we will be able to understand which one is the best one, one of, I mean it's not going to be only one probably but uh, we will get there
0: Roberto, you know, we define environmental challenges in different ways. We just talked about fuel. We talked about waste. Uh, we talked about the materials and, and, and items that you're no longer purchasing or no longer using. But now let's shift gears because you also have to educate your consumers as to what you're doing. You know, are you communicating properly enough for people to understand the work that you're doing?
5: I think, uh, I think we are improving and uh, I think that we definitely have an opportunity to be better communicators. Uh, I would say that in general terms, to the general public, I mean, because, I mean, our passengers know our product very well and, uh, you know, they spend time on board and uh, we do go through, you know, the exercise of explaining them what we are doing and the crew is always available and uh, we we tell all the all the story that we need to tell them. We could probably be a little more vocal in general terms because, uh, as I said before, as, a, as an industry, we are doing incredible things that people, when they, when they realize what we do, they are really very, very surprised. So we could do a better work in communicating what the cruise industry has been doing in these years, yes.
0: It's been my experience that the cruise industry, not just your company, but the cruise industry has been sort of reactive uh, as opposed to being proactive, you know, waiting for the government to come up with solutions that in other industries, the private sector is actually
5: leading the way. I'm not sure about that, Peter, to be honest, because if you look into our, uh, you know, like uh, today... It Cruise Line International Association which is the industry association we do have standards that go over and above the, the laws and the regulation and we do commit to apply to it and we need to every CEO of every company need to certify that uh, we are strictly following those uh, rules that we have imposed ourselves and uh, uh, in past times when uh, things have happened and steps needed to be taken, we've been faster than the regulators in, uh, in proposing and applying uh, new procedures and new standards when when was required. So, again, maybe we've not been too good in communicating it, but we are not, we are not really, uh, we are faster than the regulators uh, in changing things in that sense.
0: Okay, then let's shift gears then and talk about yeah. the scheduling sure. itineraries. You go back to the days of the original show, The Love Boat, yeah. And you, you know, you maybe, I mean, even though that was a fictional show, it did mirror what the itineraries were for so many of the, of the original cruise lines. You went to Nassau and you went to Nassau. <laughs> and I think you might have also gone to NASA. Nassau. <laughs> uh, you know, these seven day cruises. And right. that was that. Um, now, lines like yours are calling on over 1,400 ports. A big, small, unknown, not just the usual suspects. So that's very cool for people who love to love to cruise because they have so much more choice. But then there are the ports themselves. Um, Sometimes the ports will make the claim, and and it's not too difficult for them to make it in certain cases, that they can't handle that many ships in the harbor on on one particular day. So if you were to go to St. Thomas, I don't know what the day would be, but there are some days where you have seven ships in. Right? Same thing in Nassau. Same thing in, in Alaska. Right? So what I do, if I'm on a cruise or if I'm scheduling a cruise, I will call ahead and to the ports that are listed on the itinerary and say, on July 27th, it says this ship's going to be in the harbor. What other ship's going to be there that day? If they come back with any more than one more, I book another cruise because it gets unwieldy. The number the, These communities cannot, as much as they want the tourism and the travel industry, they cannot handle the volume.
5: Uh, This has been a topic that has been on the table for some time. And I think, again, the cruise industry has shown the ability to take action before being imposed further regulation. And in fact, we've been sitting together with our colleagues from the other cruise lines. And we've been agreeing on making changes to our itinerary planning to make sure that in certain ports that were, I mean, almost at the limit of their capacity, that we wouldn't be going there. Uh, with that said, I would like to uh, to say that uh, uh, in, in that sense, the cruise industry is probably the best partner to work with because we can tell you precisely three years from now, in March 27, how many ships we have, where, how many people will be on board, what excursion we'll be taking. So it's something that you can plan very well. And if you sit down with the local operators and everything, I mean, you can make sure that it is properly handled. Uh, different it is when you have people coming with m- with many other means of transportation, with their car, with buses, with trains, planes. So this is not as easy to uh, kind of control and 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 and, and plan properly uh, c- compared to cruise ships. So if you uh, if you want to uh, plan well, uh, the incoming tourism, I mean, cruising is a great partner.
0: Well, you know, it's it's that and also scheduling because. The traditional cruise ship model is you pull into port around 7.30 in the morning and you leave at 5 in the afternoon with people racing after the ship with all their souvenir purchases and boom, that's it. Um, there are now a number of cruise lines, including yours, that have readjusted their schedules to allow ships to, to come in when the other ships have left, like at 4 in the afternoon, and spend the night and not go out until the following evening, which has got to be better for passengers because you got a better immersion into the culture. There's more time to spend with the people. And no crowds.
5: Yeah, I- again, it's very much depends on, on where you are in the world, I mean, what is available. Uh, there are certain destinations that are definitely suitable for that solution, and we do it, and, and many of our colleagues are doing the same thing. So it's, it's very much dependent on the type of destination and not the infrastructure that is available there.
0: But at the same time, my experience has been when they do that, It's a much more valuable, uh, memorable cruise.
5: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, and and again, there are itineraries that are very much focused on the destination and other itineraries that are more focused on ship. We were commenting that this morning. Well, I know, know, because you have some ships uh in your fleet. Exactly. And
0: if you add the number of passengers to the number of crew, you're over 8,000, and the ship is being, uh, it was built for this too, to, to be the destination, in
5: a way. It is. And, and people, uh, you would be surprised to know that there is a high percentage of people that don't, they don't step on land. I mean, they stay on board the entire week. <laughs> Do they know they're on the by ship? The way, or... By the way, I have to tell you that this happens also on the smaller ship, on the silver Sea ships. We have a fair amount of people that, uh, even if they go to very interesting and incredible destination, they like to spend the day on board hanging out. So they don't go out in every port. I mean, you know, sometimes right. they also like to spend time on board, enjoy the, the service, the food. uh,
0: Okay, so this begs the question, in the Royal Caribbean fleet, how many ships?
5: 65, 67. Okay. Is
0: anybody living full-time on the ships now? I bet you do.
5: Uh, Well, no, there is somebody that spends a fair amount of time on the ship, like months, every year. So when you think of our loyalty program with Silver Sea as an example, uh, I remember that when the company was like 25 years uh, existing for 25 years, we had people that had more than 2,500 days on board. So, which means that they were spending months, you know, several months every year on board for 25 years. So, I mean, that's incredible. Based
0: on the metrics by the United States Customs and Immigration people, their residency (laughs) is the ship.
5: Uh, Almost yes, yeah. Because if you exceed an average of 120 days, yes, exactly. I mean, so and we have we have people that you know for several years are exceeding 120 days on board. I wonder where they the list The work cruise alone is 120 days. So right. So I if you do the work cruise and another couple of cruises, you exceed done. it. I yeah. mean, that so, yeah. so
0: the question is, where do they list their residents for tax purposes? <laughs> right? Well, that's... Uh, <laughs> They're passengers without a country. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, you have to have the right ship for the right port. Yeah. You have to have the right ship for the right culture. Sure. Um, and you have to negotiate with those ports to make sure you can get your ship in at the right time
5: absolutely but peter this is uh, our top priority because i mean we want to make sure that people go where they can enjoy their time they can have an incredible experience a memorable experience be it uh, stay on board or stay you know go ashore every time it doesn't matter so we want to make sure that people are choosing the right product and the right destination for them and this is our top priority so we, uh, by definition, we want this to happen and we do spend a lot of time and resources to make sure that this is the case. And by the way, I mean, if we, we, if we are talking about it, I mean, if you look into the uh, net promoter score, which is the way that you evaluate the, the performance of your, uh, of your product, I mean, you know, we are doing extremely well. And uh, in general, the cruise business has incredibly high scores. Uh, because uh, because of what we do, and because uh, we have those 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 things stop in our mind.
0: Well, or they don't stop; they keep going. I mean, you have to continue to do it. Absolutely. To update. Absolutely. Of course, you also have to update and
5: educate the ports. Yes. Otherwise, you're now there. You now you're slaves to them. Sure. Well, I mean, it's a kind of uh, a reciprocal uh, interest relationship. I mean, you know, so you want to make sure that. Uh, you you get the best out of it for your passengers, but you want you make sure that it's sustainable, and also the destination gets the right advantages they need to get. And we can prove that we have very long-lasting relationship with many destination. I mean, including for an example, a good example is the Bahamas, which is like very close to us, and where I mean, you know, we do work with them very very well. My thanks to Roberto.
0: 2023 was one of the safest years in aviation history, but despite this amazing record, the challenge is, can airlines maintain it? Patrick Smith, airline pilot and founder of AskThePilot.com, has a few New Year's concerns and hopes. So, I mean, let's talk about what we've been, you know, topic A for, for all of 2023, and for that matter, for most of 2022 was pilot shortage, air traffic control shortage, Uh, for that matter, TSA shortage. Uh, And the real question is, are we still where we were? Because we're seeing some interesting developments, right? The the U.S. Department of Transportation has announced that they've hired 1,600 controllers, but you and I both know that's not a learn-while-you-earn process. They're not going to be sitting at the console anytime soon. There's a long learning curve there before they'll ever be allowed to sit there and work planes by themselves. But it's it's a good sign. But you're still dealing with, what, three different air traffic control centers in the U.S. that are below the 85% staffing threshold, and that's the one job you don't want anybody working overtime, right?
4: Sure. And, you know, how and why we got into this situation is uh, – maybe a separate conversation, but here we are, so we have to deal with it. And I think the ATC staffing shortage falls under the greater umbrella of the everything shortage that, that we seem to still be dealing with, um, though I think, I think we've come a long way since uh, the beginning of the year. Um, I think you had me on, and we talked about how uh, at the time the airlines were in a state of just Kind of total dysfunction um it, it it wasn't pretty and we talked about uh if and how things would improve over the course of the year and and i think they have uh we just went through a thanksgiving period without any major disruptions or incidents um you know things aren't as smooth as they could and should be, but uh, we're making progress.
0: You know, I, I give the airlines and the airports and the and the federal agencies a, pr- a pretty strong B plus for what happened over Thanksgiving. Um, and thankfully, weather did not weigh in too badly. It, it's always the intangible, but overall, the TSA actually properly staffed at the proper times to handle the flow of a record number of travelers going through those security checkpoints. Uh, the airlines, you know, had remarkably few, relatively speaking, delays and cancellations. And uh, for the most part, people got to where they needed to go. Was it stressful? Of course, but it always is over Thanksgiving. Um, But you got to give them a B plus. That doesn't mean, though, that the systems are in place to not repeat what happened with the Southwest meltdown last year or other things. But at least you can give them a B plus for what they did over Thanksgiving.
4: Yeah, I agree completely. Um, It it was encouraging. We'll see how Christmas works out and then uh, going into the part of the new year um, remains to be seen. Um, I think of all the kind of uh, worry points, it's, it's the air traffic control situation that uh, is maybe the most urgent, and uh, you know has the most on the line. Well, you, so you yeah, you um, may,
0: you may remember Patrick that earlier in the year, uh, the the US DOT and the FAA appealed to the airlines to voluntarily cut back 10% of their flight frequencies along the Northeast Corridor because they just couldn't handle it. and The airlines complied, but that's not a good sign.
4: No, it's not. And I think I read recently that uh, 80% or close to 80% of ATC facilities nationwide are understaffed. Um, you know, how did this happen is, is you throw up your hands and, and you say that, but the, the, the fact is we have to deal with it. Um, and it is it is an ongoing concern, Um there's a, there's an awareness, I think now, uh, among pilots and, and controllers themselves, uh, that I think is, is, is helpful from a safety standpoint. Um, everybody is just a little nervous and a little, uh, and they're very, very, very conscious of what's going on. So as not to screw something up because there have been, as we know, uh, some near misses over the past months. Um, but, uh, you know, again, uh, the, the government is, you know, realizes there's a problem and is trying to get more controllers back through the pipeline. But as you pointed out, that's going to take some time. There's a lag period.
0: You're right. And, of course, when we talk about near misses, what they really should be called is near hits. Um, and the ones that I've seen uh, that the FAA has actually acknowledged is about 47, which is way above what was reported in 2022. And, of course, the FAA immediately has, you know, started a task force within the industry to find out how could this happen Well, you know what? I can tell them, and so can you. Um, You know, you've got, and we're not just talking about near hits in the air. We're talking about near hits on the ground. Um, You know, your airports are congested. Your scheduling is ridiculous. So you you have planes that can't even cross runways to get to gates. uh, And if they get to the gate, the gate's not available. uh, And it's just congestion on the ramp. That's just on the ground. And then in the air, I mean, look, you're a pilot. You know this better than anybody. There's not a runway in the world. That can accommodate more than 23 takeoffs in any given hour, given proper separation. So why are the airlines allowed to, to, to schedule 40 departures at 8 o'clock in the morning? Um,
4: right. And, it, it, and it's especially um, an issue here in, in the Northeast, where I am, where you have all the New York airports, um Boston, Philadelphia, uh, Newark. Uh, there's there's so much traffic here, and airlines continue to to, to add more and more flights to their schedules. Or new low cost carriers popping up, dumping more flights into the system. It's it's frankly a little bit out of control. Um, though I think it was last year, the FAA basically ordered carriers to to trim their schedules uh, into certain airports. I think LaGuardia maybe JFK, and so we haven't had the, the really atrocious delays and congestion that we normally have, but overall, uh, system-wide, uh, you know, there certainly is a problem with overscheduling.
0: I know, and then the real question is, what's the solution? Do you do a lottery where you say, okay, American Airlines, you have a 903 departure. We don't care where you fly or what airplane you use, but you have a gate, you can leave it at 903. Now, if you're late, you go in the penalty box you don't get a chance to stay in line, you lose the slot. And Delta, you have 907, and United, you have 911. And in the 10 o'clock hour, you switch it around, and you give United the first departure. I mean, are we going to get to that, do you think?
4: Yeah, I don't know. And this is something we've talked about before. Um, yeah, part of the problem is the way carriers have outsourced so much of their operations to regional airlines and have fragmented markets where instead of having... Uh, five departures a day using bigger planes. You have 10 using smaller planes. Uh, it's not an efficient use of, of ground space or airspace, and that's that's part of what's led to the problem. I think if the industry got smart, they would begin consolidating fewer departures using bigger planes, and the system would be more reliable overall.
0: Of course, if you have bigger planes, you have to have qualified pilots, and here we go again. Um it's, it's going to be an interesting situation to see what, what evolves. But it's not a one-dimensional problem, and it's certainly not a one-dimensional solution. Airports have to weigh in in terms of their own capacity issues. Uh, air traffic control has to weigh in in terms of their capacity issues. And the airlines themselves have to become more honest in terms of their scheduling issues because you can't schedule to be competitive. You have to schedule to be realistic. And right now, I would be the first one to argue that their schedules are just not realistic.
4: Well, I think they need the schedule to be reliable, dependable. And that gets to what I was saying about fewer departures maybe using larger aircraft. Um, you'd have a, a more streamlined system with fewer delays.
0: Exactly. Now you, you also brought up a, a, an interesting point about outsourcing, because just because the airplane says American on the tail uh, doesn't necessarily mean it's being operated by American. Uh, just because you may get your frequent flyer miles from American by flying that plane doesn't mean it was operated by American. And there's a lot of confusion to this day about code sharing um, of flights. I was at the airport recently. I actually took out my cell phone and took a picture of one flight that had nine different flight numbers, nine on nine different airlines. And, and many of those airlines operating from different terminals within the same airport. It's, it's confusion on parade still.
4: Yeah. Um, Peter, what are the two worst things that happened to air travel in the last 50 years? I would say uh, TSA and the regional jet. <laughs>
0: Earlier this year, Patrick, you know, you, you, uh, we, we saw something that was a bizarre incident. It could have gotten really bad uh, where a pilot from a, 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 an airline was given the courtesy of a jump seat on a, on a regularly scheduled flight um, going uh, in the Pacific Northwest. And for reasons that are now being debated in court, of course, uh, sometime during the flight, and he's a pilot sitting in the jump seat, he leans forward and tries to hit uh, the, the fire control bottles to shut down both engines. Uh, luckily for everybody on board, uh, the, the two pilots in the cockpit were able to stop him, subdue him, and throw him out of the cockpit uh, and then, of course, when the plane landed, he was met by authorities, and and then later claimed uh, he was having a reaction to taking mushrooms. Yikes! Now, as a pilot, you know this, and I know this. There's something that's a long-standing courtesy uh, within the airline business that if you're a, if you're a deadheading pilot or you're flying to another location as a commuter, uh, you may be given the courtesy of the jump seat. At the pilot's discretion, at the airline's discretion, as long as you show proper identification, uh, what's going on?
4: Yeah, what a strange story, and uh, frankly, an embarrassing one for the industry, uh, for pilots. Um, uh, it, it 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 touched off a bigger a big conversation um, media wide about the issue of pilots and mental health. Um, it came to light after the incident that this individual had been dealing with. Uh, depression or, or mental health issues of one sort or another for a long time. Um, you know, whether you can blame what happened on him using illegal drugs or him being depressed, it kind of depends how you parse it. Um, but it did segue into, uh, the bigger discussion about pilots and mental health. And, you know, the, uh, I mean, ultimately pilots are, just like anybody else and and occasionally have to deal with mental health issues just like like anybody in any profession including professions that have lives on the line you know you it, know patrick you know i i have i just have a, ahead, a, a quick
0: comment for you and my and my dad told me this cuz my dad was a doctor and a pioneer researcher and 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 professional in alcoholism and drug abuse and what he said to me is what 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 america had never come to grips with and maybe we still haven't is that if 6% of the American public has an alcohol problem, or they're alcoholics, or 6% of the American public has a drug abuse problem, or 6% of the American public is, is uh, pre-suicidal, that means 6% of truck drivers have an alcohol problem, and 6% of school teachers have an alcohol problem, and that also means that 6% of pilots also have an alcohol problem. I mean, it's, it's not confined to any one particular job category.
4: Well, maybe. Um, anyway, people uh, don't like to hear the words pilot and mental health in the same sentence, I guess, for obvious reasons. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's also true that this incident notwithstanding, um, a pilot in need of mental health assistance is not, by definition, a dangerous or unsafe pilot. And I think that's the, mis- the mistake people make is extrapolating and and... Assuming the idea that a pilot who say, is dealing with depression is therefore ready to crash the plane into the Alps and kill everybody, um, as did happen, you might remember in the German wings yes. incident a few years back, um, you but know, we in, but, do have yes, a but few that, of these but, outlier, these but, are outlier incidents.
0: They are. Go ahead. But I was going to say, in that particular case, he was already under the care of a psychiatrist who had recommended strongly to the airline that he not be allowed to, to perform his duties. And... Nobody paid attention. That was a scary one because it's one thing to say I have a problem, which is a pretty good admission. We love that for anybody. It's another thing to seek treatment, which we always recommend, which is also great. But if in the treatment process, the, 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 de- the decision is made, you're not ready to go back in the cockpit. Somebody has to take control and make sure that happens.
4: Yeah, the, the German wings incident was a failure of the system. There's no way around that. Um, But it was also highly unusual, uh, like we said a minute ago, an outlier incident. Um, In the meantime, you know, there are pilots out there who need help with things. That doesn't make them unsafe or dangerous. I agree. Um, But there is a stigma. And so pilots aren't necessarily eager to disclose this information when it comes to medical certification and whatnot. So that's a problem that the FAA needs to work with and work on. and, And to their credit, they are. They've established a committee to streamline the application process and and medication approvals and and so on and so forth for pilots who need help.
0: And by the way, this is the same issue that we dealt with years ago with the FAA finally creating a system where pilots could self-report safety violations without fear of losing their jobs.
4: And airlines too have become a lot more proactive and, and, and upfront about encouraging employees to, to, Deal with with things they need to deal with without fear of repercussion. And I think that's a good idea because it keeps the problem from being driven underground.
0: My thanks to Patrick, to Roberto Martinoli, and to Eliza Reed, the First Lady of Iceland. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, Be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, just log on to petergreenberg.com.
1: The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If
0: you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free
3: It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or
2: Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist